0: All right, let's go ahead and get started here this morning as we press on in our study of the one and others, how we relate to each other, primarily in the church, but then certainly beyond the church in our families, in the workplace. We, If we were to extend this conversation into the workplace and go into any depth, we'd have a whole lot more to talk about with all the nuances of uh, Modern culture and Christian ethics uh, might be a good conversation to have. But for now, we're guided by the one another statements, and we've worked our way through the New Testament, not exhaustively, but just highlighting some in each of the books. Not every book has them. Matthew warned us about betraying and hating one another. Uh, The idea of looking out for self, um, even if it means throwing everyone else under the bus. Uh, and so beware of that tendency, that, that old sin nature uh, raising its head. Mark chapter 9, they argued with one another about who was the greatest. Uh, be careful that you don't always insist that your viewpoint is best. Trampling one another, thousands of people gathered to see Jesus to the point that they trampled one another. Uh, We can only assume by that that they felt their need was more important than anyone else trying to get to them. So they were going to get there and be first in line. Um, And yet Philippians tells us to seek not our own good, but the good of others first. In John 5, they received glory from one another and did not seek the glory that comes from God. Uh, This basking in our self-righteousness, the praise of people, rather than recognizing uh, that praise belongs to the Lord. We'll we'll echo that in our study this morning. Acts chapter 15, after a sharp disagreement, they separated from each other. Uh, Perhaps a stubbornness, and nothing will change my mind. I'm not going to see another viewpoint. Um, It has to be my way, and that tension was so strong that even the apostle and his Uh, Fellow laborers had to part ways. Romans 14, 13, do not pass judgment on one another. In that context of both Christian liberty uh, and even the application of Christian principles, we have to be careful that our standard of spirituality isn't the ultimate measure, uh, but rather we allow all believers to come to Scripture and uh, draw conclusions from what's there. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's begin there this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We'll hit a couple in 1 Corinthians here. If you remember studying through this letter, this is a church uh, clearly in the process of sanctification. All churches are, but Corinth was uh, the recipient of a letter that addressed numerous issues And so we shouldn't be surprised to find relational counsel uh, passed on to the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 built on the foundation of stewards of what God has given us, being found faithful, Paul writes, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? So as stewards, we're to be faithful with what God has entrusted to us, Paul now applying that to his ministry uh, and an ongoing conversation that began in chapter one, that there were various teachers in the church, different gifts of even teaching, uh, different styles, different presentations. And Paul said, we have to be careful that even as those with a clearly defined gift could be teaching, it could be the hospitality, it could be, you know, the evangelist, it could be any of the gifts mentioned in scripture and combination of them, we have to be careful that those don't cause us to begin distinguishing each other by some kind of measure of success or uh, who soaks up the spotlight. Paul says, I've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit. So rather than us squabbling about who's the best and competing for teaching time for the benefit of the church, we're going to recognize that both of these gifts have been received from the Lord. And so verse 7 really drives home the principle, what do you have that you haven't received? And if we recognize the truth there that everything we have has been received in the wisdom and grace of God for the good of the body, then why do we act as if there's any need to compare or even rival somebody else's gift? Um, If you've received it, then why do you boast as if you hadn't? As if somehow you worked this up and fine-tuned it and uh, should receive the credit for it. Uh, So mark those verses. That's a good text to... Uh, to teach even as you're parenting, and you start seeing your kids being able to, they're good at something. Uh, It just comes natural, and they might be great at academics and some of your other kids aren't. Uh, Somebody might be coordinated and good at sports and others aren't. Someone could take on music and some barely limp along. Uh, Verses like this help us understand, wait a minute, I'm a steward of these things God has given me And when we hear it in the parable, it kind of makes sense. This one had the one talent, this one the two, this one the five. And we just read it and move on because it felt just like it was a story. But that's real life. That story is illustrating our story. And so even in this room, we're all different and have different abilities. And there's no use saying, well, I'm better than her at hospitality or, you know, I'm a better, you know, communicator than that person is. No, who's being faithful with their gifts? Uh, That's where the chapter began. It's required of stewards that they be found faithful. And Paul builds on that and he's warning us about being puffed up in favor of one against another. Uh, Recognize their gifts uh, and then just move on. Uh, you might have a favorite radio preacher or a favorite podcast or whatever it is. That, that's fine. Um, but don't take any great uh, pride in that or accredit that to them. Recognize um, that that favorite preacher of yours, and I have mine, um, are gifts of God to his church. Uh, and that's all we need to think of them as esteem their faithfulness, give credit for that. Obviously, we're to honor faithful ones, but recognize they received a gift, and faithfulness is the requirement. Uh, over a chapter, First Corinthians chapter 6. Disputes break out in chapter 6. When one of you has a grievance against another, dare he? does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? So Paul was admonishing the church at Corinth to deal with their grievances within the church. I can remember in my seminary days, a grievance broke out amongst a couple of seminary guys. Uh, one of them worked for the other one's company, uh, and they had a little way of helping the employees that you know, for the hours they logged in the business, they could earn money to help that person, and, and the crew of the business would help them on a house project, like, you know, put a roof on, or finish the basement uh, of their home or something. Well, you know, there were some hours accrued, and then uh, the, a job started, and then that guy left the company working for him, so it was like a question of should they finish this work, or how much was he owed? Um, And it kind of, I don't know if it was ever really resolved, but I remember thinking, like, could that just, like, go before the pastors and some of the wise businessmen at church who have had these kind of arrangements in much bigger contexts? And could they have had this panel or a little court and just decided this and tried to work it out? And it felt like it would have been a perfect fit for 1 Corinthians 6, um, that didn't happen, and I remember years later still hearing about, you know, bitterness that was hanging over and debts that were supposedly owed. Um, but it it just serves to illustrate what happened so many years ago in Corinth that people were going to insist on getting what they deserve. Um, this is mine. I'm entitled to it. I deserve it. And the question Paul asks after asking, dare you go to the unrighteous judges to try to resolve these things. He says in verse 5, I say this to your shame that you would go to the unrighteous. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And the answer to that, according to Paul's logic, would be because we'd much rather God's name suffer loss than for me to suffer loss. I'll not be defrauded, but Paul says it's already a loss that you took this to the unbelievers and couldn't exercise wisdom. But it sounds like the Corinthians were saying, I don't care about that. I care about the money I lost or what's my fair share. And Paul's point is, why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? So how do we answer those questions? Like if somebody were to say to you, well, why, why not just let the other person be right and you take it on the chin? Like what, why would we do that when that's not justice or something? Roy?
1: Well, it's really easy to give the right answer until it's you.
0: <laughs> right, Exactly. What is the right answer? <laughs> what do you think, Daniel?
2: Uh, verse 8 also, I think, goes to, to play in all of this. Uh, there's two sides in this equation. There's the first side of, aren't you willing to take a little bit of wrong from your brother? But there's also, a, why are you doing this to your brother? Why would you defraud your brother? So I I know we preach on one side of the equation. But I think both are valid. I talk through. But again, how do you have those conversations about a third party that mediate high emotions and uh, feelings
0: of broken justice. Yeah, what, are, what other Bible principles can we, could we counsel somebody with? If you were sitting down and you told them, listen, it looks like First Corinthians says, you should just let it go. You'd be the one to walk away, suffer the loss. And they're looking at you and they, they might actually say, you've got to be kidding me. That's like $1,200. I don't have that kind of money. Like, wh- What do we tell them?
3: I Not not too long ago, there was a situation where um, some folks that I know were encouraged to uh, seek counsel slash mediation through brothers and sisters at a church, and the response was essentially no, and when we boiled it down and kind of talked through it, ultimately what it came down to is that there was a lack of willingness to obey what God's Word says, and that
0: Allowing someone else to
3: mediate In the church in the context of the church meant I have to actually submit to what God's Word says And even if I don't like it and that was the struggle And that scenario was I'm not sure that I want to do what God's Word says ultimately Because I still want to cling to my own sense of justice or self-righteousness or whatever it may be um, I think that applies here too. I mean that would be my fear is that God's Word would tell me something And I wouldn't be ready to yield to that
0: power. Yeah, so now we've added this fear of, well, what if the church doesn't see it my way? You know, and we're still kind of on our our perspective on the matter. Daniel wisely pointed to verse 8, which would kind of remind us, well, maybe the other side's not seeing any perspective either. But we can imagine a scenario where you might be right and still being counseled to let it go, suffer the loss. Will you be defrauded in this for the sake of unity or peace? And they're thinking, you've got to be kidding me. That That's not right. That's not justice. And they could literally leave the church with a position that sounds really good, justice. And that church was telling me to do something that's not even right. When in actuality, they were just asking you to be defrauded, but what other scripture do we give to a person who's saying, is that all I have here, is to lose? It seems to me like this may
4: boil down to we claim to believe in a sovereign God, but do we really when we
1: won't allow ourselves to be defrauded? Talks about another place, you joyfully accepted the spoiling of your goods. Uh, That's Total reliance on a sovereign God who will execute justice—maybe not now, but later—and we just don't have a big enough God.
0: Yeah, we have to get to these bigger principles. If you were counseling this person, you know, the Christian brother next door was cutting down his tree and it fell on their fence or their car or something, and he won't pay for it, and now they're fighting about it, and and then they're, they're not going to go to the church because they're afraid the church is going to side with him and. you you would have to be drawing on some bigger principles because the Bible doesn't only say go around and suffer loss and be defrauded. No, there's a foundation on which that request of sacrifice is made. And it would go back to big principles like, listen, are, are you willing to trust that God is in control of this? Do you think that he didn't provide that car and that fence the tree fell on? Like, do you think you earned that yourself and now somehow it was lost? And how dare God let that happen when, you know, last year in the stewardship conference at church, we, you know, at this scenario, you were hearing all about it all belongs to God and, you know, it's all his stuff. But, we don't really believe those things when it comes down to suffering loss or being defrauded. Suddenly it was all my work, my time, my money, my stuff. Somebody owes me and we're a long way from what do you have that you haven't received? And other questions like, and who did you receive it from? And why did he give you those things? And why has he, has he given you so much or asked that you suffer the loss of some of it when he maybe has never given any of that to some other people? There are all these questions that draw our perspective to something more than what we thought was such a virtue, justice. Justice is a virtue, but at times God says, you're not going to find it on your own, and you're going to have to leave that to me. And he calls it justice with a big stick, too. He calls it vengeance. Um, But he says that kind of repaying, that kind of seeking out justice and making sure it's evened up belongs to God. And at times, it's just not going to be within our ability or means to find and accomplish that justice. And so, you would be wise to hear scripture asking you, uh, is this an occasion where you suffer the wrong, Uh, where you are defrauded, where you lose out rather than um, taking on that vengeance and pursuing something, especially in this context of uh, rejecting any biblical counsel or wisdom that would help bring a solution to bear uh, and would pursue a lawsuit.
4: Now this is talking about within the church. Right. So, you know, it's, I think sometimes it's difficult to then say, okay, so how do I deal with the unbeliever? Like, should I be handling that different, or is, is there some threshold or something? Right. I mean, that's that's the next big question, that sort of. At least pops in my mind. Uh, if, you know, I know our, our studies focus more on inside of the church, uh, but it, it still sort of begs the next question of you know, our Sermon on the Mount, right? Turning the other cheek.
0: So, what do we do with not to have lawsuits with one another? Dave's right. This context of the church, that's why it's a loss, because you're going to the unbelievers to, to find wisdom that you say you don't have when it's right there in the church. Um, what, what do we do with, you know, lawsuits with unbelievers? And, you know, especially in our nation, probably the most, you know, balanced nation in the world in regards to individual rights, freedoms, justice. So we, we, we hear lots about lawsuits, and some of them rightly so. What do you do? Like, is this verse saying Christians should never be in lawsuits? Um, Dave referenced the Sermon on the Mount. Do we just always turn the other cheek? Is that a... What do we do with some of these questions? Roy? Well, there is a-
1: subject here, but but, uh, okay, Uh, you have to sell your cloak and buy a sword. Well, swords aren't used for spanking, so self-defense is taken care of there. All when he was before the court, he applied to the law for his defense, so that may give you a doorway into, I am going to magnify the justice of God by pointing out that this is wrong and taking it to a court to adjudicate that issue. I think there's a whole lot that can be said there, but
3: there are a few points to say it's not all a
0: Okay, so uh, Roy referenced some of the sword passages. It'd be an interesting study if you're into uh, swords and civility. Um, you know, sometimes it's, yeah... Take up your sword. Other times, it's those who live by the sword die by it. When he sends the disciples out on their practice evangelism, you don't take a sword. You don't need that for the kingdom of God. Um, so four swords, and yet you don't need them. How, how do we how do we blend that into our into our thinking? Um, what else? Let's keep adding to it, John.
5: Yeah. Uh, okay. Two different thoughts. <laughs> One, on the concept of justice, I tend to look at it more as the application of, am I being just to the other person? It seems like the prophets are calling people to account for their failure to be (coughs) just in their relation towards others. And that's a case where we're trying to dodge justice, we're just trying to have our own. But but the other concept reminded me of when Sennacherib came against Isaiah or Ahaziah and Ahaziah is overwhelmed because Sennacherib was there with all his troops and had Jerusalem surrounded and uh, had that letter of threat from Sennacherib and so he spread you know he went to the temple and bowed down and spread out to the complaint and called out to God so he was appealing for justice as far as God's uh, righteous protection. And in that case, you know, God did the miracle of the deliverance. But at other times, you know, he prepares us to go to battle, you know, to be our own defenders under his leadership, if you will. Yeah. I don't see this as uh, either or. I mean, it's, there's a lot of very issues in this whole house.
0: Yeah, a lot to the conversation on justice. One, are we seeking justice as much as we're trying to be just. And then the thought of even in the Old Testament, sometimes God delivered and brought justice, and yet sometimes he had the armies go out and fight for the right causes. Uh, Daniel, what else? Um,
2: end of James 3, starting verse thirteen, all the way through chapter 5, verse 6. You have a lot of examples that are proud called all the bigger concepts that might have driven the common sense. wisdom is coming from above, the reason that world that you're seeking your own good, um, uh, the unrighteous rich are talking about in chapter 5, and uh, how the justice that they'll call out for, uh, the harvesters that they defrauded will call out to God for. So, I mean, there's, I would kind of point somebody to this before we started talking about the nuts and bolts of you know, at what point can I sue my brother? At what point does it become grievous? Is there bigger concepts that were actually being driven out by Paul and first, first Corinthians, as opposed to finding those definitive lines where I can be, quote unquote, justified to, to um, start a lawsuit? Right. Um, I think ultimately, uh, chapter 4, he says, um, um, uh, starting in verse 13, talks about you know I'm gonna go and do this thing in this other town and make a lot of money and and the point of that was you don't even know what tomorrow brings because that's all in the hand of God anyways, much like you don't know the outcome of being different. Do you could you say what would happen if you allowed a, a fairly sizable um, monetary um, uh, inflicted item to, what would that mean on the um, the other side of it
0: Yeah, what you are seeing is there are all kinds of other conversations that we could get to. Um, Just know generally, uh, if you're searching the Scriptures, you're not going to find any law forbidding that Christians engage in a justice system, even if it looked like a lawsuit. Um, I think you'd always be factoring in, how does the testimony of Christ, you know, seen in this? So, you know, there may be times where, You'll suffer the loss, even to an unbeliever. You know they built their fence, and it's three feet on your property, and you don't have that much property anyway. And it's like it could be a big fight, but maybe you'd let it go. Like if the spirit led that way, that'd be fine. There's, but there's no law saying you, or no command saying you can never exercise justice as it's set up in our civil government. Um, even on the Sermon on the Mount, you realize. There, it's a fitting discussion for our day. In our day one, we live in a society that's very ready to dive into lawsuits. Um, and we also add to that now an idea that corporations, big corporations are bad, you know, big government's bad. Anything with power is bad. So let's go after them and get our fair share. So when you hear, turn the other cheek and go the extra mile, we'd have to study those texts and see, okay, that generally is reflecting more of the heart of a personal loss um, than it is, you know, big government taking advantage of me or big corporation. Um, The Bible's not saying you should let big corporations run over the little people, but it is saying in personal engagements with people, there may be times where you do just this, First uh, Corinthians 6, more of a legal matter, Sermon on the Mount, more of a personal affront or offense or uh, call to sacrifice. And you are told, you know, you better have a heart that's quick to mercy and not retaliation uh, rather than always ready to fight. Da- uh, David?
4: Uh. I was just thinking as well, um, you know, when it comes to a situation like this where you've suffered an injustice and, you know, you might be looking to go to litigation against your brother, consider also, like, what is it that I hold dear? Do I hold dear these things of this world or do I hold dear Christ and the body of Christ? Um, is my treasure in heaven? Or is my treasure this stuff on earth? And I think that informs, you know, am I going to go to the, to the magistrate about this or is there a different way?
0: Good questions. And and I think here's the value of the church as uh, the Apostle Paul in chapter 6 brought out and Paul here was making the point, uh, Paul the Apostle and Paul of Buckner or something, <laughs> Um the church is valuable because you you could have an issue that you don't know what to do with, and you could on one day be thinking, as David thought, what do I value most? And it's a relationship with this brother. But let's assume you're, you're pretty much in the right. You could be also thinking on another day, um, well, he needs to realize he can't just run over people like this, or he needs to, like, he, that's not helping him. So I need to do this because I'm helping him. Well... Okay, how do you decide between well, for his good, I need to not be defrauded, and yet I'm looking at Corinthians six, saying, well, maybe for my good, I need to suffer the loss and trust the Lord. That's where when you go to the the church, and I don't even think it's purely the elders and pastors, though there clearly is spiritual wisdom there. I think in a law matter and like that, that could be a whole body of wise men. Um, in a family situation, it could just be the other family. You know, you've got all these grown siblings and there could be help in all those family members in solving a little issue over how to do Christmas or something. There's all kinds of ways that when we yield ourselves to the wisdom of God in other spirit-filled believers, uh, we're doing a good thing. Um, You've probably heard Proverbs used often, a multitude of counselors, you know, gives us safety. Well, That doesn't always have to be, like, a professional counselor or a staff pastor. It's just spirit-filled people who are speaking truth, and in that truth you realize, okay, they see my perspective, but they're also helping me see other perspectives, and, you know, I I should listen. I should hear, uh, be quick to hear, uh, slow to speak. Back to James. sort of interesting. I mean, he's say God gave us authorities for a reason,
4: right? Right. Which is why we're supposed to pray for them. And then sort of, okay, well, more more so in the church because at least they're godly and they should be trying to discern the will of God. Um, makes you wonder why churches don't have, like, in their vows when you're becoming a member that you will take disputes to the leaders of the church, right? <laughs> like, like, you have to actually commit to that that you would right. do it because it seems like it's often a fault within the church uh, where we don't do that. And we read the passage like this, but do we really apply it?
0: Yeah, and unless maybe you've been in a lawsuit and been on either end of winning or losing, or, you know, watch the silly court shows that are on TV and see people coming out thinking they were right and they lost. And, and until you could personalize it somehow, you don't realize how. How much faith it would take to go to a body of believers and say, okay, you decide, and have to walk away from that, not saying, oh, they sided with him. No, that would be ungodly. That would be wrong. That would be faithless. The whole point was you were trusting them to to show a path of truth, and when they do it, you'd better lean hard on, okay, they think it would be best if I suffered the loss, or maybe they handed some of the loss to both parties, And instead of walking out saying, oh, I didn't get what I wanted, we should be thinking if we were in that situation, I got exactly what God wanted here. This is how he told us to do it. And it worked, not because I won or they saw it my way, but because truth was dealt to everybody and we all leave trusting God, including those that had to make the decision and now think, wonder if they're mad at me. Well, you'll have to trust God with that. But Paul knew that's how human relationships work, and yet he, under inspiration, says, this is how God wants you to deal with conflicts. Roy?
1: Well, we have a path separate from this for obvious sin. And factor into this, if you have a dispute, there is likely going to be a difference between the two as far as their... I don't know how else to say it, but standing in the church, maybe a young believer as opposed to somebody more mature, somebody that's better friends with the pastor and elders, and somebody that's less. So even this kind of a a situation where you're trying to figure it out, there are landlines all over the place.
0: Yeah, I mean... We're not even getting too specific other than a tree falling on a fence, but obviously life can get far more complicated and not even have to be blatant sin. I think that would be other passages addressing how do you deal with this. Uh, These matters obviously will be a temptation for sin, um, but doesn't necessarily look like it was an immediate sin that happened. It was literally just a, wow, that's kind of an unfortunate situation. What, What does wisdom look like here? Paul? Just a
3: commentary, but I was thinking about Philippians 4.2, uh, an exhortation to Euodia and, and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Uh, it's just this little toss-out in the middle of apparently these two women didn't agree about something. It was causing some sort of a rift, but the, the charge at the end of the day, granted we don't know what even if what they were disagreeing about was even sinful, um, we tend to think that if it was sinful in and of itself, like the topic of debate was sinful, that it it would have been called out. So the sin was probably the disagreement, not the source of the topic of disagreement necessarily. But just the mandate of pretty simple, just agree in the Lord, uh, which I think is powerful and challenging.
0: Yeah, Philippians 4. Uh, Euodia and Syntyche echoing chapter 1 where he tells them, listen, you, you're partners in the gospel. You, you live life together so in the Lord find the unity and probably could have drawn on what he said to Corinth there. If one of you has to be defrauded embrace that and trust the Lord to make up any lack. Um, a lot of faith here that we need.
2: Um, I- As we're looking through this, it describes to me If you've gotten to this point where you're considering a lawsuit against your brother or sister of Christ, a lot of other things must have failed along the way. Good counsel, wise agreements, being able to work together with some comfortable. I would see the thrust not on a lawsuit, but on how do we build relationships inside of the church that allow us not to give to that point, allow us to have those kind of things Another counselor, the it's knowing when to take wisdom from the other counselors. I think there's that would be where I want to spend the time rather than trying to figure out when I can, when I can have a lost chance
0: on a road. No, it's true. It It does seem like the heart has already gotten too wrapped up in this, and you've forgotten some of the key principles, which I think is why Paul says, listen, it, it's already a defeat. That you're going to a lawsuit. You, you've already lost. Uh, let's step back now and figure out what a win would look like. And it's not even, you know, Stephen Covey's seven habits. One of them is, you know, think win-win. It's not just some idea out there like, oh, let's figure out some way that we both. No, it, it's let love rule. And, and if you can't find a way to peace, then ask the church for help in the wisdom for making that peace. But in doing so, what is implied there is what we began with when Paul first addressed this was that that you've got to trust God's word here, that this is how he set it up. And now you have to trust God's people and the spirit in all these imperfect people to help point you in a way that would be uh, profitable. Uh, So there's a lot there and we haven't even really begun to stretch our application to the realms of marriage and like daily relationships where we're not going to sue our spouse. Plenty do, I'm saying, but generally that's not what's in your mind. Uh, But you are thinking, I'm not not giving here. I think I'm right. I'm not going to take the loss. I'm not going to be defrauded when they're the ones that started there. They're the ones that overlooked or they're the ones that. So even in daily relationships, we can get caught up in this weighing out, like, okay, here's what I did, and here's what they did in response. Clearly, they're wrong, and, and we're trying to judge and discern who should pay who um, relationally. So, while you might not ever think of taking a Christian brother or sister to court, the question is, when we lumped this passage with what he'd write in chapter 13 on love, you know, keeping no record of evils, like, are we are we pretty much lawyering up on our spouses all the time because we're making a case. Um, You've already lost, Paul says, when those thoughts are in your mind. You repent of those and figure out a way to to make suffering loss an act of worship. Uh, It's faith-filled. It's God-trusting. And that's not easy. Paul doesn't say it is. He just says, this is the way it's going to be in relationships with imperfect people. Um, You trust the Lord when they're not perfect relationships. In heaven, you can set 1 Corinthians 6 aside. You won't need it. Uh, On earth, better go there often and see, Lord, do you want me to be defrauded? Um, If so, I'll trust you. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10, uh, we'll just mention it, but you can start turning to Galatians 5. We'll look at that one and uh, in 2 Corinthians 10, he says not to measure ourselves with one another or compare ourselves with one another. I think based on what we just looked at in that stewardship principle, uh, ministry comparison is pointless. Don't compare your gifts with others, whether they're totally different or the same. Um, your hospitality might look different than someone else's hospitality. Um, don't just don't compare with each other. That is not the measure of st- of holiness of godliness. Uh, that would be found in Christ. In Galatians five, uh, we're invited back to our uh, umbrella principle of loving one another. So, in verse thirteen. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So we have served one another, but that's positive instruction, so we'll hit that one later. We're looking at the negative, biting one another, devouring one another, consuming one another. Now, you know, the nursery joke would be, you know, you post this, you know, negative one another out there in the nursery. If you bite one another, you know, you'll be consumed by each other. But what does that mean for us to debunk to bite one another and to devour one another and then consume one another. It just sounds a bit extreme in its language. And I think it is. I think Paul is using clearly language that doesn't reflect physical actions other than toddlers and their biting. Um, we don't bite at our spouses. You probably haven't bitten a coworker lately. Um, certainly not devoured or consumed them. That, that's pressing into absurd if we were counting on literal words here, meaning exactly what they mean. Paul is clearly grabbing up these words, and he's saying, if you could see this in nature, for example, and a, a, an animal devouring another animal, you're getting the sense of the, the destruction that comes about when we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. Um, So growing up in Pennsylvania, we had a couple dozen chickens. And we just kind of strung some chicken wire through the woods. So kind of just had a natural fence post everywhere and a little barn so they could go out. And, you know, once in a while, you know, I don't know how it would even start, but a chicken would get like a little wound on its back, you know, I don't know, scrapes itself on something or feathers fall out or whatever. Then the other chickens would kind of peck at it like, once in a while, and then pretty soon it'd be this, like, gaping sore, like this wound, and these birds would just keep pecking at it. I didn't, like, I thought they ate grains and little insects, and now they've become, you know, these carnivores pecking at this other bird, and and usually you either have to get rid of that bird or put it somewhere else to see if it'll heal, or it, it, it'll never end. They will literally, you know, cause that thing to Probably get infected and die or something. Um, chickens will do that, and I'm sure. I guess there's probably other animals that will as well. But apparently, Paul says there are Christians uh, who will be tempted to go after uh, things they don't like or something that they think is wrong, and, and and they'll and they'll keep going after it. And and instead of showing any love, what it looks like is the opposite, which is devouring one another, and ultimately consuming one another. Uh, all of this because they missed all the law being fulfilled in this one word, love. Now, we know that as love, loving God, which is demonstrated in loving others, which is his emphasis here. Uh, through love, you serve one another instead of biting and devouring one another. So again, there are people that I don't know. They're just not our kind of people. You know, they, they don't have the same interests. We don't get along with them. We might say things like, oh, "I'm just annoyed by them," or, you know, we have our frustrations with certain people. And the warning, though, is, okay, would you like the priest in the story of the Good Samaritan? Will you avoid that person and make sure there's n- no occasion to show any love, or will you labor to love through that annoyance, love through that? frustration with them, uh, love through the difference in order to make sure you're not harboring that spirit of picking at them, always seeing the worst in them, um, never recognizing any good, not seeing them as a gift to the body for the common good. That's what love would look like, but if if you refuse all of that, then you're kind of left with the opposite, because as Paul says it, The law is fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself, but here's the alternative, you can bite, devour, and consume. So you'll either love or you'll be fostering that spirit of biting one another. So while that word isn't one that we'd often use to describe relationships, I think when we really think it through, uh, it becomes pretty stark that biting and devouring one another is the opposite of love, uh, that's the battle that will rage this week. The devil's agenda will be a spirit of biting and devouring um, just let it let let your mind pick at something and, and and because it's it's not right you don't like it or you can love and like the good Samaritan, instead of going after that wound with yeah see they're not that I don't like it's no i'm gonna I'm gonna anoint that i'm gonna I'm gonna help. Heal that wound. I'll do what I can to bring that along, so that it uh, it sees health and healing. Uh, be careful, Paul warns, that we don't consume one another. Uh, let's see, one last one here in Galatians five twenty six. We've just heard of this struggle between flesh and spirit. We're told to walk by the Spirit so that we do not gratify the desires of the flesh, verse 16. Those are listed out for us. Here's what it will look like when you let the flesh have its way, when you yield to that temptation. And then here's what it looks like, verse 22. When the Spirit is at work, and that work is called a fruit, and that fruit is just described in a lot of different ways. Uh, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Well, that's interesting because he just told us up above that there's all this law that is summarized as love. So all the law that we could hear about how to treat each other is summarized in one word, just love people. And if we're trying to figure out what that looks like, we're told just walk in the spirit because if you do that, there's, there's no law that governs that. It's just, it's always right. The spirit doesn't need rules by which he lives or guides us. The spirit of God is always right. So if we're walking in that spirit, we don't have to be, oh, what, oh, oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to do this to people, I'm not supposed to lie to them, I'm not supposed to pick at them, I'm not supposed to. No, we don't need the law because we're walking in the spirit. So all the law is summed up in just love. Love is the fruit of the spirit. And so if we're walking in the spirit, we're going to be loving, which means we're going to be keeping all the law. But That law seems a long way away. I, I don't need to keep looking at it because The Spirit's helping me get it right. So, walk by the Spirit so that you don't treat one another wrongly. And then he goes on to say, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Uh, Here again, it's, the fruit of the Spirit will keep us from that. So keep in step with the Spirit so that you don't live this way. But this conceited, uh, we've heard that word already. It's that idea of being puffed up. Um, it produces or at least leads to that judgmental spirit. And we're not supposed to do that. We saw another one another's. Uh, we're not to provoke one another, not to be envious of one another. The provoking is kind of a calling out. It's like Goliath standing on his mountain calling out to the Israelites, hey, I dare one of you to come out and fight me. It's that challenging. It's, it's putting myself up against someone else. Well, when he's already told us not to be conceited, in the immediate shadows of telling us to be filled with the Spirit, perhaps there's a danger that we start thinking we're pretty spiritual. And we actually pit our spirituality against somebody else who we think isn't as spiritual because of what they wore to church or because of what they did Saturday night or because of, you know, their attention or their, the movies they watch. We have our reasons and, and Paul is saying, wait a minute, walk in the spirit and love one another. And the first warning he gives after saying be spiritual is don't be conceited. Don't provoke one another. Don't envy one another or be jealous of them. Uh, You've probably thought somebody else has it all together. May not have looked like pure envy, but it's the beginnings of it because eventually you'll start saying things like that to God. Like you'll struggle with your besetting sin and you'll say, well, I don't know why I can't be like someone. They never have any problems. Well, it's as if you're arguing against God and saying this is your problem and I wish I were like them because they don't have problems and there's all kinds of wrong thinking going on here. So think this through a little bit. Why verse 26, don't be conceited, don't provoke one another, don't envy one another, after a whole paragraph about walking in the spirit and being spiritual and having this fruit in your life of spirituality? It's just a warning that the battle always rages. You thought you had ended the battle in verse 16 when you said, I'm going to walk in the spirit and not gratify the works of the flesh. And even in your effort to walk in the spirit, there's danger that thinking your effort accomplished something. And now you're conceited and pitting yourself against others. Either I'm better than they are, or I'm not as good as they are. And they're both wrong. You're looking at the wrong place. You're be focused on the spirit so take these one another's we've got just two more negatives or so and then we'll dive into the positives but realize while you might not be served with legal papers of a lawsuit you might not be asked to join a class action lawsuit this week because of the shampoo you used 20 years ago as you know caused cataracts or something. Um, but be careful that you're not litigating against someone, litigating against a spouse, against your kids. You know, we tend to tend to hold stuff against them. Uh, we're trying to teach them to forgive their siblings, but we're pretty good at remembering you did this yesterday, and I'm going to remind you you did. Um, be careful that we're not biting and devouring. We, we, we don't want to pick at the wound. We're supposed to be healers of the wound. Um, so... A lot of these negative one another seem far away from us, but they might be a little closer than we realize, uh, below the surface there in our hearts, and so let's be warned by them and against them. Heavenly Father, uh, we're glad that we can come to your word, and that your Holy Spirit will use it to, to show us how we can be better lovers of you, our God, and better lovers of each other, so help us to that end this week, that we would... Win the battle in that moment of exercising a fleshly response or a spirit filled response. And by choosing the spirit filled life, uh, we would see the fruit of it in our lives and we would model that for those around us. Would you allow us uh, the faith to believe these words we've seen this morning that in your church is a collective wisdom that may benefit? Uh, the disagreements we've had in our marriages or the frustrations we've seen in our parenting or perhaps some other interpersonal conflict. Um, Help us just to be able to recognize that truth is outside of us. Uh, We are not the sole possessors of it, but it comes from you. And so we need to yield ourselves to your truth, to your wisdom. We want to be wise, but not in our own eyes. So give us wisdom that is from above, as we heard in James 3. Uh, May your word be real and powerful for us this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.